Welcome to Breaking Paradigms, a podcast where we talk about global perspectives on spatial planning in practice and theory by Constance Frech and Sarah Kusch. Today we're conducting a little experiment. Get a piece of paper and a pen or open a writing app on your phone to create a list. Ready? Let's check if your place is walkable. Think of the basics you always have in your fridge or pantry. Your everyday needed food. What is your nearest food supplier? Can you walk there? Meaning, is there a footpath and access for pedestrians? How long would it take you to walk there? Write down all answers in minutes, whenever you literally can't legally walk to a place or it would put you in physical danger, note down an X. Pause the podcast if you need a moment to write it down. Now let's continue with some other supplies, like toiletries, food items, like special ingredients for international food, and any other things that you need a lot less regularly, maybe once or twice per month. How long does it take you to walk there? And let's not forget about clothing, office products, furniture, or construction materials. Give it a guess. How long would you walk to the next one? This, of course, doesn't mean it has to be your brand or favorite store. But just if there's one close to you. Next, think about medical services. How long do you walk to a pharmacy? How long to your general practitioner or healthcare center? What about other services like hairdressers, tailors, shoemakers, locksmiths or other such service providers? What is the walking distance to them? Now imagine you have kids at an age where they need to go to school. Would they have a manageable footpath? How far is the next primary school compared to the next high school? Are both distances walkable? What about university? Could you walk there? How long would it take you? The next step in life would then probably be a job. If you're not already working, imagine where the next place of work for you could be located. How long would you walk there? And if you are already running a business or are employed, how long does it take you walking to work? Lastly, let's talk about recreation, sports, entertainment. How long do you walk to the next park, museum, fitness center, restaurant, cinema, waterfront? Write down the time you take walking. Now check all the scores or rather minutes of walking time you attributed. Pause the episode and calculate the average time. Would you say your city or town is walkable? Do you get all the necessary basics of life there? Are there maybe just a few aspects that stick out? Is it maybe not the distance, but the infrastructure, like footpaths, that is missing? Without knowing your specific circumstances, it's quite difficult to tell you from afar if your city is walkable. But if your average score comes in at under 30 minutes, we would say it's very walkable.
anything until up to 60 minutes can still be considered partially walkable. And above that, well, we'd say unless you are someone who enjoys long distance trekking, it's probably not a very walkable place. If you wrote down some X's, that is a red flag and can't be considered walkable. So is your place walkable? Let us know in the comments or write us a message. In some places, you can even find walkability scores on your neighborhood. For certain locations in the US and Canada, there is a company which ranks listings of apartments, houses, etc. with a walkability score. However, the list you just listened to is definitely not very extensive. But for anyone who wants to do a more detailed analysis of your place, you can download a spreadsheet we designed on our website, breakingparadigms.org slash walkablecity. Once again, breakingparadigms.org slash walkablecity. There, you can fill in your numbers and it will calculate a walkability score for you. So why is the walkable city such an ideal in the planning community? Jane Jacobs, with her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, started an important conversation and created awareness for the importance of a walkable city. She opposed the construction of large roads which separated entire neighborhoods in the US. She also opposed a lot of what then was considered as the state of the art in planning at the time. In the future, we might dedicate an episode to her philosophy of planning, because it's really worth a closer look. But for now, we are staying on topic with the walkable city. Jane Jacobs, of course, didn't invent the concept. It is a very human concept that was intercepted by different factors, like industrialization and the car. However, she was a vocal advocate and pointed at the specific advantages of the walkable city. There are, of course, a plethora of small detailed reasons why the walkable city is so praised. After reviewing different literature, which we will link below, we narrowed it down to three levels. The individual, the community and the global. On an individual level, we have the benefits of physical health and interconnected with that emotional well-being as well as the increased awareness of place and reduced transportation costs. On a community level increased connectivity, better microclimate conditions and a safer environment, because there are more eyes on the street, are beneficial to make public spaces more accessible. Children, for example, can use sidewalks and close by playgrounds by themselves at a certain age. In general, walkable areas are often described as more vibrant and usually have higher property value as well as increased economic activity. Similar findings have been reported after implementing pedestrian zones in cities and towns around the world. On a global level, you primarily have ecological benefits, like reduction of emissions and lower consumption of oil or gas, but also higher resilience of the economy because it's less dependent on the outside. It also increases the attractiveness for tourists. Furthermore, it gives planners a large variety of materials to work with and to decrease or prevent sealing absorbed areas. 
therefore improving their resilience toward natural disasters, mitigating microclimate. We'll link some resources in the description and on our website. And if you have some tips or good reads, you can recommend leave them in the comments below. But as we said in the last episode on the automotive city, not all distance is bad. Just think of a sewage treatment plant, airport, industry buildings or large-scale power plants. However, maybe there's a future where different types of advancements allow us to actually reduce noise, pollution and other hazards to a point where they can be part of the city. And finally, let's amplify the different realities around the globe. The facilities, services, infrastructure you need depends, of course, on your culture and habit, especially if you have a strong tendency to outsource tasks. That makes you more dependent on services, meaning more ways, than if you are able to provide them yourself. There are also differences around the globe on what is considered walkable. If you don't have access to public transportation or a vehicle, a one and a half hour long walk to school might be very walkable in consideration of the benefit of an education. While some outside factors, like crime or lack of infrastructure for pedestrians, might make a neighborhood too dangerous to walk, even though the distances aren't that long. In the book Walkable Cities in High-Density China, published in 2017, the authors took an in-depth look on the walkability of Shenzhen and Shanghai. When analyzing Chinese metropolises, one needs to be aware of China's recent history. The last 30 years of China's opening caused an extremely fast industrialization and therefore high-speed development. Cars and skyscrapers became symbols for modernism and therefore big blocks, wide streets and extremely high density appeared. A typical block of Shanghai nowadays is from 400 to 800 meters long. As a comparison, Tokyo's blocks have a width on average of 50 meters, Paris 120 meters. A few years ago, China's central government started to embrace values and principles for livable, healthy and sustainable cities. Main reason for that was the increasing air pollution to hazardous levels. Therefore, the most important aim was to reduce air emissions. Another interest of the Chinese central government concerning people's health were the increasing cases of cardiovascular disease. Due to the fact that the walkable city could tackle both, that concept slowly gained more popularity in Chinese urban planning. Current studies in Chinese cities show a correlation between urban form and fabric and air quality. It used from those results optimal ratios of so-called street valleys and orientation of buildings are given to use wind conditions for better ventilation. Chinese urban planners define four elements, land use, urban form and fabric, road and transportation system, green and open spaces. TUD, transit-oriented development, is part of China's urban planning strategy. The walkability is only slowly gaining importance. Urban planners recommend mixed-use planning. According to YES studies, show mixed-use cities better air quality. Therefore, zoning is recommended to put daily life destinations and schools close to pedestrian and cycle paths, and polluting areas 
not adjacent to residential areas. Living complexes and residential compounds should also have daily supply in walkable or bikeable distance. 400 to 2,000 meters are considered as walkable. Up to 4.2 kilometers are seen as bikeable, and the distance for public transport is quantified with 9.6 kilometers. Of course, also road and transportation systems play an important role. Bad walkability and bad public transport lead people to use their car instead, which again causes air pollution. And finally, green and open spaces. As already mentioned, are wind corridors, especially green access, helpful for ventilation and dust detention. Green areas also motivate people for outdoor activity. In US and Europe, parks are mostly used for recreation and sports. In China, it's also very common to use squares and wider sidewalks for activities like dancing, tai chi, or street calligraphy. Having such places close to residential areas helps also to increase the population's health and happiness. All in all, walkable cities seem to be the healthy and environmentally friendly way of life. But is that the whole story? In 2013, Christian Holzrau and Katrin Six from TU Dortmund discussed in their paper how commuting and travel habits correlate to the size of the inhabited municipality. Parts of the results showed people who live in small villages normally have longer ways in their daily routines, opposed to people in city who can satisfy their necessities and wishes just around the corner. But vibrant urban places which are normally walkable, are often home to a group of society which is globally linked, often internationally working and far-traveling. The German study showed that the urban population have potentially a more mobile lifestyle in terms of travel, opposed to the rural population who often travel a lot less. So even though walkability seems more environmentally friendly, you need to take travel habits into consideration and look at the whole picture. This is just to say that we should take walkability with a grain of salt and not to fall into a narrative that a walkable city can mitigate all social and environmental challenges. What do you think about the walkable city as a concept? How does it compare to others? What is your score? What do you think are the biggest hurdles? Let us know in the comments on YouTube, on our website, or send us an email. We're interested in your stories. And if you're interested in some cool Spatial Planner t-shirt or mug, check out our shop at breakingparadigms.org. This was Breaking Paradigms by Constanze Frey and Sarah Couchier. Be part of the conversation. If you like what we do, consider supporting us and join our Patreon community. Connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and at breakingparadigms.org. Content and editing by Constance Fe and Sarah Couchy. Sound design by Didac Barroso and Florian Frey.